Well, and I think this this ties back to the earlier conversation we're having on complexity, right? Because the you said, you said it's it's how much revenue they're producing per unit of selling time, right? Let's say per per hour of selling time. Well, complexity is eating away at that selling time, and so that's one argument for reducing that. You are introducing more um, more of that quality time for them to actually do the work that or to plan. I mean, that, that's a great point. There's so much. Especially, you know, and anyone that's working any any even remotely complex deal knows like so much of the work is that. It's not the call, it's not the email you're sending, but it is all of the research, all of the planning, all of the connection points, the positioning that you're thinking of doing. And, um, you know, that, that's what I was coming back to earlier and saying that context shifting and making sure that the time that you have, because if you're burnt out after all the admin work that you have to do, well, guess what? You're probably not gonna be your sharpest when you need to do some of that strategic work. Hi friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Puyan Salehi. Puyan is the CEO and co-founder at Scratchpad. And in our conversation, Puyan and I dig into why he believes that complexity is the enemy of performance in sales and why complexity is the reason revenue teams struggle with quota. So we dig into it. We explore what are the causes of this complexity? Is it self-inflicted? Too many tools in the tech stack? We also dive into how this complexity complicates the life of both enablement and RevOps teams as they try to drive behavior changes across the sales organization. So we get into all of this and much, much more. But before we get to Puyan, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So let's jump into it. Puyan, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, I think this is, I think you're a member of the th- the, the, the three-timer club. Uh, I think it's your third third appearance, at least your third appearance. Yeah, so, I, I, I think that sounds about right. I'm excited to be back. Yeah. Yeah, well, your first appearance even preceded uh, when you started Scratchpad. So, yeah. Uh, all right. So, for people who aren't familiar with you or Scratchpad, why don't you tell us about you and about Scratchpad? Sure. Uh, so, I'm Puyan. I'm the CEO and co founder of Scratchpad. I've uh, been building companies uh, well, with my, with my co founder, Sarus. We've been together for 10 years across quite a few products, quite a few companies. Um, learned a lot and still doing it and having a lot of fun doing it. And Scratchpad is what we call the first workspace for salespeople and revenue teams. And it started simply from an observation that we saw that most organizations have a CRM and a ton of tools connected to it. And AEs are overloaded with tools, yet you look at how they work, almost everyone has the same pattern. It's a spreadsheet for pipeline and account management. You know, notes are in Mac notes or Evernote or OneNote, tasks are all over the place. And so that's where people do their work. And then, you know, Friday mornings, weekends are dedicated to updating the pipeline for managers. So they stop complaining and they have it for forecasting. Um, <laughs> so really that was the observation. I and mean, everyone accepted that as an okay state of the world. And we questioned it. We said, well, why do other crafts have studios or workspaces designed just for them? Mm-hmm. And why do salespeople not have that? And so that's what we set out to create. Got it. So, I mean, you're sort of known for making it easy to do all those things that you described, yeah. um, which I guess starts sort of fighting back a little bit at the complexity, I guess, around selling. Because you've, 
and some things that that you've written and so on it's you sort of identified complexity as the enemy of performance or as a reason why teams struggle with quota even so what yeah why I is think, that i think complexity is 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 yeah is the enemy of, of execution which then leads to performance and gosh that's a great question why is that well yeah i mean so what is I, it about complexity that that has an influence i mean i can and we'll talk about this. I got ideas about how complexity you know, influences yeah. poor sales execution or results in poor sales execution. But let's let's dive into that because I think, as you talk about, yeah, you've questioned certain assumptions in building Scratchpad. Is mm-hmm. and I do this constantly in the show. Is yeah, what are the assumptions that we're we're questioning there? Yeah, well, I think if if you look at sales in general as as a role as a job to be done, mm-hmm. and forget selling as part of a team, right? Just look at the world of an individual seller and imagine that was the entire business. That alone, it's a very complex job to do, right? You have try to find new customers to sell to, try Mm -hmm. to manage how you're reaching out to them, whether they're the right customers, try to manage your your existing customers and and selling to them and Mm -hmm. finding the right people there and staying organized. So it is just a very fast paced, complex job to be done in the first place. As, and now it's just one person. So now take that, but then apply it as part of a, a larger organization, right? And you can scale that up everywhere from like a, a startup that has 10 salespeople all the way to public companies that may have tens of thousands of salespeople. Mm-hmm. And what you're trying to do there is get an organization to sell. Well, getting an organization to sell is, adds multiple layers of complexity to it. Because it's not just that same level of complexity that exists for one person, but now you're introducing a dimension of human complexity. We all, we're all wired differently. We all process information mm-hmm. differently, communicate mm-hmm. differently, work differently. So there's that layer. Then there's the complexities in systems, right? And how do you get all these systems to work together? And then there's complexities in processes. How do you get all these processes to work together? And so that's what it just, you know, it feels like the slightly larger the organization gets, the more it just feels like, gosh, you are treading through mud and ice just to get anything done. And it's a pattern that I've seen in in every single organization, right? It just it feels like this gravity that exists that's yes. pulling everyone towards towards that. Well, so the question I guess I have as I was thinking about this yesterday as I was preparing for our interview is is have we made things unnecessarily complex? Right? I mean, we'll look at the basic task, you know, sales yeah. is a job to be done. I mean, I spent years of my career selling really complex systems, um, high dollar, you know, seven, eight figure deals. Uh, yeah, we had the same task. We had to go through the same processes to, to, you know, everything that you identify in terms of identifying potential customers and, and exist supporting existing customers, you know, selling, getting buy-in from the buyer, so on and so forth. And did it with, you know, a lot less in the way of technology, which wasn't so optimal, but it just didn't exist for the most part at that point. Mm-hmm. But we're doing the same basic jobs now, and not saying we don't need the technology, but are we just, are we using them in such a way that we're making things more complex than they need to be? Because I think there is a price to be paid in terms of, of execution. Yeah. So. Well, 
I, the, the belief that I have is things gravitate more towards complexity than they do towards simplicity. Like it's, trying to make something simple actually requires a lot of effort. It's, it's yes. hard work, right? So yes. if you have that belief, then you would say, yeah, like over time, things do become more complex. Now, if we can argue if nature were to run it, maybe not, right? There are a lot of mm. systems in nature that exist that go more towards simplicity, but this isn't nature and natural evolution that's happening. This is people trying to make a business run. But I would right. say, you know, in some ways, I think we absolutely have made things more complex. And then you can ask the question, well, why? And I don't know if anyone's intent is to say, oh, like, I want to introduce complexity into the system here, like a RevOps organization coming in and saying, yeah, like, we want to make it as complex as we can for our people. <laughs> so, I think there's a tension that exists, right? Because there, there are... Uh, in some ways, you can think about two basic needs that exist. There's the the needs of the business or the organization to operate and to grow. Mm -hmm. And then there are the needs of the folks on the front line to, to sell. Right. And it's these two needs that I feel like come into conflict with each other. Um, and frankly, the people that have most of the power are the ones that are trying to solve for the needs of the business. Mm -hmm. So if we think about it, who are the folks with the, the ones with power, the ones that decide what processes go into place, the ones that decide, you know, very tactically what fields go into Salesforce, what tools people should use. And the challenge that I've seen is a lot of the folks that are that carry that power and are the ones that make that decision, for the most part, are not well connected to the folks on the front line. And so when yes. they make the decisions to introduce new things, whether it's new tools new processes, what have you that introduces unnecessary complexity to the folks on the front line, which slows them down because, you know, and again, I don't think their intent is to do that. I just don't think that they may be thinking about it. They may not have the skills to do it because it is much more of a design thinking process. And I don't yeah. know the last time that I saw, a, you know, an ops organization that had a design team. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think, I, I put it slightly differently, which is, you know, with, with I think one of the challenges with technology is, and one to your point about leaders not thinking these things through, which is just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And I think with all the, yeah. the new technologies that have come to bear, uh, people just say, wow, this is cool. Let's do it and let's use it. And while in isolation, there's certainly value when you put together as part of a process that then, like I said, imposes a, a price of complexity on sellers, the individual sellers. Yeah, it's not really thought about that. It's just like, yeah, that's, this is cool. Let's do this. And I think this is sort of a fundamental lesson with technology in general. It's just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think it ultimately falls in the back of the sellers in many cases. Yeah. Yeah, which is un un unfortunate because they have a pretty hard job to do already. And then on top of that, it's, hey, check out this new tool or guess what? We're rolling out this process. And all of a sudden you have all these other fields to fill out and do. Yeah, or make this many calls or send this many emails and, you know, we can go down the whole chain. It's like we sort of adopt these things sort of unquestioningly to some degree. Yeah. Um, so complexity just sort of getting back to that point then is and i think this is a lesson for rev ops and sales teams in general as revenue teams is that 
at least in my mind, where complexity becomes the enemy of performance is really from a time perspective, right? Is is just at a basic level, the less time a seller has to be thinking about their opportunities and working on the opportunities, the less opportunities they have to <laughs> to do a good job on them. You know, I, I think time is certainly one factor or mm-hmm. one, one one hit that that complexity takes. Um, but I think there's more to it. Right. Because okay. it's, yes, you, you certainly, the, the more complex something is, the harder it is to do, the more time it takes and you just don't have time to do other things. But the piece that I've also seen across, you know, I've personally felt when I've had to deal with things that are really complex um, and I'm seeing across organizations is, and this is going to sound really soft and fuzzy, but I, I believe it and I think it's real is the emotional hit that it takes. And again, I we're at the end of Emotional the day hit on, on the on individual the person, seller, on the individual person, right? Because in yeah. some ways it's, you know, you, you look at a sales organization and you think, okay, I have X number of sales people. They have this amount of time and they can sell. Well, guess what? They're also human. And so, yes, they may have that time, but you know, one of the things that I struggle with in, in the job that I do is the context shifting mm-hmm. and when you, sh- when you have to shift context quite a few times, it drains your energy. And yeah. so the eight hours or 10 hours you may normally have may actually look very different when you have to switch context a bunch of times. So I think while reduced time is certainly one, I think the emotional hit that it takes on your energy level, on your presence, on your ability to be effective in what you do is also another factor to consider with complexity is that you just may be, you know, after having to update, let's say they, they roll out MedPick and it's all these fields in Salesforce that take forever to update. And then you click save and it was like, Oh, sorry, someone else was updating and it's all gone. And you have to come back and do it again. You're pretty damn frustrated at the end of that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then imagine if you have to go right into another customer call, like are you in the right mindset? So again, I know it may sound soft and fuzzy, but I do believe that the energy that you bring into your work, the level of focus that you can bring into your work has a strong impact on your performance. Um, so I would add that as another factor to it too. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think I certainly lots of studies done about uh, time management. Talk about the the penalty you pay on time in terms of being able to resync back up when you're switching contexts. Uh, yeah, is real, right? Um, so, how are you seeing revenue operations teams deal with this in terms of okay, whether it's you know, hey. Yeah. Are we setting aside blocks of time due to certain tasks? So people, you know, per, you know, Cal Newport saying with deep work saying, look, we got to be focused specifically on this task for uninterrupted without context switching. Um, How are they dealing with that? Well, it's assuming that's actually assuming that they are dealing with it. (laughs) So let's, let's maybe step back for a second. And I think most, almost anyone Almost everyone that I have talked to, probably everyone, but I'm, I'm not going to say it. I'm going to say almost everyone uh, that I've talked to that's in RevOps or enablement. Listen, they're all feeling it. They're, they, they know that things are overly complex. And, it, and what are the symptoms of it? What do they see? Well, rep, the front line isn't necessarily following the process. They're not seeing that the, da- the data that they want in their systems, right? That's one piece. But they're also seeing it in their own worlds through all the tools that they have to manage, Mm-hmm. All of the integrations that they have to do, the 
the massive backlog of projects that exist on every sales ops and rev ops team, it's nuts, right? Because there, there's all these initiatives that are changing at the business level, yet the, the rev ops organization or the folks that are responsible for implementing them, they can't keep up because it takes so long to make change management happen. And so I think they're, they're feeling it, but I wonder if folks know that, okay, it is actually the complexity part that we need to solve. So I think the first step is just recognizing that this is a problem that needs to be solved in the first place versus just trying to run faster. So, so that's one. Yeah. And I think, I think people are getting there. Um, but in, in, so let's assume that, that there's a world of folks that, that see it and they're like, okay, this is a problem. What do we want to do about it? How are they solving it? Well, on one extreme, things I've seen are like, all right, let's take a very prescriptive lockdown approach. Like we as a centralized team are going to dictate to you, the frontline, exactly every single thing you can that cannot do when you should do it. Everything is going to be prescribed to you. And recipe for disaster. Well, you would think, but there's still some folks that feel like that is, that is the way to go. Um, other folks are trying to cut down, right? And, and I actually think the market turn is accelerating this. A lot of folks are stepping back and saying, what do we really need? Now, that's driven mm -hmm. more by probably by the CFO's office and saying, hey, we need to cut spend. And it's having a secondary effect on reducing complexity and saying, how can we consolidate some of some of these things? So right. I think it, it, there are very few organizations, I think, that are proactively trying to prune their systems and say, let's look at our entire system and let's see what's working, what's not for the front line. How can we reduce complexity? I don't think that's happening much just yet. There are a few organizations that I would say uh, are doing that, but I'm finding them to be the few right now. I would anticipate that would probably change over over the next few years but i would think that that given the turn in the environment economic environment that we are seeing the shift away from growth at all costs mm -hmm. and you know, certainly in the software world um i haven't really seen it <laughs> you know it should result in hey a greater focus on sales execution mm -hmm. not sure i've seen that take hold quite yet um not yet either. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I think right now we're probably in the stage of tool reduction. Whereas before, you know, when you're in the growth at all stage or growth at all cost stage, mm -hmm. and let's say that comes down from the very, very top, from the board, from the investors saying, hey, you have all of this capital, deploy the capital so that it can turn into growth. And that drum is constantly being beat on. Well, the execution turns into, okay, well, like, let's spend. And so the threshold to buy something, to implement something goes down generally and say, well, like we're willing to take a shot. Let's experiment. Let's see. Because what, what we really need to do is grow and we have the money and we're supposed to spend the money. And that's the directive that's being shared with us. Let's try a bunch of different things. Let's get a bunch of different tools. And I think now that's shifted a lot more to, whoa, 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 we need to cut down. We need to reduce the spend. So a lot of those tools are going. And in some ways, I think it's a good thing for, you know, I guess companies that are in a healthy spot that have a lot of cash on their balance sheet can, can withstand uh, this downturn because it's forcing everyone to look in the mirror and say, hey, are we truly a must-have? Are we solving a meaningful enough problem to make the cut? Yeah. And, yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like the question that rarely gets asked is when we look at some of these things that create complexity within revenue teams is by adding this tool, let's say, to our tech stack or whatever, 
or having this particular process, and you talk about behavior change before. The question that really gets asked is, well, how is doing this helping our buyer choose us? I mean, that's a whole other question. <laughs> Let's introduce that. But, as it, but it seems like it should be the perspective that drives so many of those decisions. What are, what are we doing? What's this particular motion that we're undertaking with this initiative? Mm-hmm. How is this helping our buyers choose us? So, listen, I'm with you, and I think that that's right. But I would say that that is actually more a function of the philosophy of the sales leader at the organization in terms of whether they're actually buyer-centric, customer-centric. Hey, Mm -hmm. good sales is creating a good buyer experience, so they eventually do choose us. Mm -hmm. And in other organizations we've seen, it's much more... Here's what we're doing. We're, we're pounding the pavement. It's all about activity. We're go, 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 right? And, yep. and just pound through it. And so I, I think that introduces a new variable to say, yes, like how can you not only reduce complexity, but reduce complexity in a way that works for our frontline and it works for creating a buyer experience. Yes. There are not many organizations I've seen that are taking it to that level just yet. Yeah, because I think if you're looking at sales execution that sales organizations have to look at that perspective, right? And it's one that that gets overlooked. And I've been seeing more and more data recently about this, about surveys about why why buyers actually buy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it's, it is the buying experience. It's not that drives it more so than particular pricing product functionality and so on. Yeah. I, I mean, we've seen that. We, we've certainly won, won deals where folks just said, we just had such a delightful experience that we felt like this is going to translate into real value over the long run with us, right? If, if, if the experience sure. for us was this great up front, then... Um, What's going to be like on the backside? Yeah. We're not even customers yet, then, then, then yeah. yeah. So, but I do think you're right in that. Because if you look at the, the landscape there are now more and more tools than there ever have been. And you think right. of in, in any existing category, there are more tools and yet there are new categories being created left and right. And those categories will certainly fill up with many competitors and tools. Yep. And, and I think that's a healthy thing, but a lot of folks do put the product first as it's the set of features that is what is going to differentiate us and allow us to win in the market. And in our view, you know, it's, it's Scratchpad, certainly one of the things that I, I drive with the team and saying the product is simply one leg of the stool for us. It is simply one channel for us to deliver an experience, mm-hmm. but in the way that people interact with us and the way that people explore how they might solve certain problems using the product that we have built, that is yet another opportunity for us to create a delightful experience for them. Um, so again, I, you- I try to, yeah. Well, I was going to say, do you as a CEO, when you look at your product, mm-hmm. do you have, look at it from the perspective of yeah, anything that we do, the barriers to entry are pretty low. <laughs> and so anything we do, other people can do reasonably yeah. quickly or they're doing. So back to the point we are talking about before, this overall experience of how the, the buyer experiences our company really has to become paramount in the way we look at how we go to market. Absolutely. I mean, not just in how we go to market, I think in how we 
how we build this entire organization, how we build a company. Yes. Why should we even build anything here? And right. in some ways, yeah, I, I don't know how much my, my product team is going to appreciate this, but no, the reality is, I, you know, at least in the world that, that we live in, in like SaaS applications, right. it's hard to find a tech moat. It's hard to find true differentiation through technology. You can tell yourself all day long you have it. I think there are very few circumstances that I've seen that there really is a true technology moat. Right. Um, so I think you're right. Well, if that doesn't exist, then what does? Why might somebody pick you over others? And, and eventually that comes down to brand. And in, outside of tech in the consumer world, I mean, that is very well known. But if you get to the essence of brand, what, what makes a brand? It's how other people talk about you. Right. Well, what, why might they talk about you? They're either going to talk about you because they had a really crappy experience, which is not the brand that you want, or they're going to talk about you because they had a truly delightful experience. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, I, I follow that logic and say, well, and, and, you know, delight is one of our core values at the company that we've set. And we set it from day one. We talk about it actively. We, you know, I'm constantly thinking about it. Um, in, in ways that we can design it, that we can uh, we can deliver it, and I view it as just as important as a pillar as the product that we create and, and we ship into the world. Yeah, well, no, I love that. I mean, it, it's sort of digging back, taking a step back. We were talking before is is it's never been easier to really understand what the buyer's expectations are of this experience or what this experience should be, mm-hmm. yet it's this huge yawning chasm that I see when I talk to sales leaders, as I do all the time on this show and other places, is I really making the effort to understand what those expectations are, right? I mean, and you talk about jobs to be done. As Yeah, I think sales is a job to be done. I think, I think customers hire salespeople to help them make a decision. And if, if you're hiring someone, don't you have certain expectations and requirements in mind? Yeah. And, you know, that I've never to date, I would say never, almost never run into a sales leader who said, when I asked the question, so before you go hire those next few people on your sales team, have you talked to your buyers about what they need your sellers to be to help them? And, yeah, that question just doesn't get asked. But if you're trying to create this experience for the buyer, yeah, you want to be mindful of that. It's a good question. I wonder why, though. I wonder why that's not a question. Have you, yeah, have you got any, any It doesn't occur to people. It's just never occurred to them. Well, no. we're hiring the salespeople for our needs. That's like, no, you're not. <laughs> you're hiring the salespeople to help buyers make a purchase decision. So what are the things that buyers need and sellers in order to help them get their job done? And it doesn't mean that's, that's you know, exclusively what you look at, but it's just as one of the, some of the factors you take into account. What are those yeah. attributes that they need? And when you ask, they'll tell you. So do you think that I mean, if we follow that, that thread then? Sure. It seems to me that the profile of folks you would be looking for in that case, or would say, hey, at least maybe in the SaaS world in general, it is leading much more to a consultative sale. 
Would you? Is, yeah. is that something it's, okay? Yeah. I mean, certainly there's some products that are more transactional. We know that, but but you have to look at the reason why buyers choose to talk with salespeople. Because if they could, I'm of the belief, if they could do it all by themselves and feel confident in the, in the decision, they would. But self-aware buyers know that the value of salespeople is they can ask them questions they don't think to ask themselves to help them better understand the problems and the challenges they face and potential outcomes they can achieve. So, yeah, they probably have in mind yeah, somebody that could, an ideal person that could help them with that. And I just yeah. think it's, you know, these are factors that we need to factor in when we're hiring people. It's not hiring for our, our quote unquote, you know, conform with our culture. Sure. Fine. But is your culture really helping the buyer get their job done, which is all they concerned about my job, you know, gather, make sense of information. I need to make a good decision with the least invest of my time, attention and resources possible. Yeah, that, that, that is something I do agree with. And, um, I do see some, some companies, at least in their marketing, you know, what you, what you, what you can see externally is, is so much about them and look how great we are as a company. Look how great our product is. And I'm usually not as a, a huge fan of that, but mm. making it much more about why should somebody care? Why is it that somebody might trust your service to or, or product to solve the problem that they have and, and really getting into that mindset? Well, I think a, you talked about brand. I think mm -hmm. when seller or buyers, excuse me, are engaged in a buying experience with a particular seller, the seller to a large extent is the brand. Yeah. So that, that, that I think is, that's a great point. And thinking about how your team, your, you know, the, the folks on the front line, everyone, like anyone that's touching the customer experience is supporting the brand experience is a really, really, at least I, it's a point I care a lot about. Yeah. Well, I think it's, yeah. So when I think about this, we've been talking about sales execution is get our way back to that is, is mm -hmm. yeah, I think this relates in the sense that, that, you know, as, as sales organizations and as individual sellers is they have to be much more aware of how they are being perceived mm -hmm. by the buyer. And I think you, this is, this is, next, of, do you see a lot of organizations putting that as a priority in their training and enablement? Oh, not at all. Okay. So I look at, I look at training and this is yeah part of what I wrote about in my book, uh, sell without selling out is, is we need to do the sales training, you know, the sales skills and the process training and the product training and the customer training. But in my mind, that's like 50% of the way done, get to where you need to be. The other part is, yeah, what are these human attributes that enable us to connect with buyers more effectively, build credibility and trust, to deploy our curiosity and ask better questions and, uh, yeah, reach levels of understanding, you know, through our listening that perhaps yeah. we weren't able to do before. Those aren't trained by and large. And I think that's a big opportunity because I, I, I see a similar pattern as well, where a lot of the enablement, a lot of the training is focused just internally. Here are the process yeah. to follow. Here's the deck to use. Here are the fields to update. 
And I, you know, I, in the work that I do, I always, I, I like to look outside of tech. I mean, I just, I like to look as broadly as I can to look for patterns mm -hmm. and, and start and start seeing what common commonalities exist. But I feel like in this topic, we have a lot to learn from the hospitality industry. Because yes. if you look at the training that they have and how folks at, you know, the top hotels, the top food establishments, the, mm -hmm. the entertainment establishments, so much of the training is on how do you interact with the client? Yeah. And it makes a difference. And it makes a huge difference, right? Even, <laughs> even, even down to the detail of don't forget to smile. Right. Like make sure that you are smiling when somebody is walking in the door or comes up to the desk or when somebody's greeting you yep. and then in all the ways to approach conversations or to how, how to ask questions. And, um, and again, all of those then feed back to what we were talking about earlier, which is how do you create the, a buyer experience? Now, again, that buyer experience can mean different things to different companies. Uh, but I just, I think there's a lot to, to learn from that industry. Well, and so I agree. And again, this is getting into what I had written about. It's, I think one of the biggest sources of value that you provide to a buyer mm -hmm. is making them feel understood. And yeah, who teaches that? Right. It's, 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 you know, I've had many instances in my career mm -hmm. in selling systems and, you know, things of, yeah, seven, eight figure type deals where I was a startup, I didn't think we had any, any chance of winning because you're competing against these, yeah, multinational corporations. And when you ask the customer why we won, it's because you're the only one that made us feel understood. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're, when you give value to the, to the things that are important to other people by understanding them, that really stands out. And it's just this, this, this mindset and this perspective, again, that we don't teach is this, oh, the reason I really want to understand the buyer and really make sure I truly understand is, yeah, I'm communicating to them that I value what they find to be important. Yeah. That's, that's a differentiator. That's just one example. Well, I think if we unpack why, at least my, my view on it is because it, it, creates, it creates credibility when you do that. And it also creates a lot of trust. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are, uh, to, to your point, the buying is a, is a factor that may not necessarily be on the decision-making criteria that they have, because usually those are features, but, you know, you could certainly bet that, do we trust this vendor? Do we trust this person that, that they will be there for us and then we can work with them? Uh, and I think the, the feeling of being understood is certainly a big factor to that. Yeah. And it's just one example, right, of sort of the, as I was written about, is, is these using your innate human skills and being able to amplify those to bring your best self as a seller yeah. to these interactions with buyers. Because ultimately, that's, that's sales execution, right? I mean, a lot of people want to talk about sales execution in the context of a process or we're going to execute our process. At the end of the day, the execution that matters is when... Yeah, I'm across the seat from you or I'm looking at you on the screen and it's us. That's the execution that matters. And have we built that rapport? Have we built that connection? Have we built that level of trust mm -hmm. where 
you know, you want me to ask you certain questions and you are prepared to answer certain questions I ask that you wouldn't necessarily answer for any other salesperson that comes off the street if they haven't built that same level of connection, credibility, and trust. That's right. And so I think that we tend to look at execution at too macro of a level still mm-hmm. and have forgotten that it really takes place one-on-one. Well, I'll say it, one-on-one, right? And it could be one-to-many, but one-on-one. And that doesn't get enough enough attention yeah. from a training standpoint. I think it's a good point because if, if, you, if you say, you know, the mental model for most folks is probably – Sales execution equates to activities. Yeah. For the most part, right? Whether it's calls, dials, opportunities, you're touching, what have you, but like that, how are you executing there? And I think what, what you're talking about is such an important point is the execution of actual, the, of the actual interaction and how are yeah. you executing that interaction with somebody? Because it ultimately boils down, this be a whole separate conversation we'd have on this is, is your definition of productivity. Mm-hmm. Because I believe, and I've managed teams doing this in the past, is productivity is a function of revenue generated per unit of time. Let's say per hour of sales time. Yeah. That's your productivity. It's not how many calls you make. It's not how many emails you send. It's as a salesperson, as an AE, how much revenue am I generating per hour of sales time? Because that then dictates what the productive capacity of an organization is because yeah. you know what the productivity is in real terms of mm-hmm. each of your sellers your productive capacity is not hey quota is a million dollars and we've got 10 people and you know 60 percent of them will make it and we'll discount that by 80 percent that's the number we should hit that's not your productive capacity your productive capacity is hey these people actually generate on average you know x amount of dollars per hour of selling time mm-hmm. assuming a certain amount of sales time for each individual, that's our capacity. And so what we do to improve and to grow is we help people become more productive mm-hmm. when they're with the buyer. That's how we grow yeah. productivity. Well, and I think this, this ties back to the earlier conversation we're having on complexity, right? Because the yeah. you said it's it's how much revenue they're producing per unit of selling time, right? Let's say per, per hour of selling time. Well, complexity is eating away at that selling time. And yeah. so that's one argument for reducing that. You are introducing more, um, more of that quality time for them to actually do the work that they were. Or just to think, yeah. right? Or to plan. I mean, I mean that, that's a great yeah. point. There's so much... Especially, you know, and anyone that's working any, any even remotely complex deal knows like so much of the work is that it's not the call. It's not the email you're sending, but it is all of the research, all of the planning, all the connection points, the positioning that you're thinking of doing. And, um, you know, that's what I was coming back to earlier and saying that context shifting and making sure that the time that you have, because if you're burnt out after all the admin work that you have to do, well, guess what? You're probably not going to be your sharpest when you need to do some of that strategic work. Yeah. And this is why, as I like to say, I've won all my big deals in the shower because that's when, that's where I'm just sitting there thinking about them. Right. Yeah. And I don't have anything else to think about. And this is where the ideas come and, you know, to the point where I you know, get a waterproof pad that I have in my shower to write notes on. It's, it's like, yeah, it's happening then. Cause you're not giving yourself time during the day 
Yeah. There's a great book um, came out. I had the author on the show, a woman named Juliet Funt. It's called A Minute to Think. I would highly mm-hmm. recommend it. It's about, yeah, how do you create what she calls white space in your day? And this is basically time that's unassigned to any task. And and she's you know she said yeah it's, this is not time for meditation or it's, you know this is just white space right mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah really oh, that's going to look on a on, on a calendar right <laughs> well hey but that's <laughs> it's like hey, you need to your calendar right yeah but I'm just well it's the whole thing about as you know as entrepreneurs you know you're working in your business or on your business. Yeah. Well, well, listen, yes, for, for me, I think I could, that, that would make sense. But I'm imagining if I'm, you know, if I'm on the front line and I'm blocking time off on my calendar for quote unquote white space, how that might be perceived. But well, but that is the issue, though, isn't it? It is. Right. It is. It is. So sellers operate in this idea, this perception of. And again, so one of the things I wrote about in the book is people, we have this this culture of conformity that sprung up in sales mm-hmm. that somehow you know everybody has to operate the same way and we've got these unusual you know expectations of busyness and other things that are sort of applied uh, uncritically and i think the one thing we have to change right yeah. everybody's gonna everybody approaches their job differently we're hiring individuals to be successful how do we help these people become the best version of themselves well, it doesn't necessarily mean that we make them all into or attempt to make them all into clones of each other, but how do we help them become the best individuals? So, yeah, if somebody has time in their calendar, uh, if the numbers are working, then yeah. Yeah, and, and there are, and, and listen, you look at other other functions or other roles inside of a company and that that pattern exists, right? So for, for the engineering team, for example, mm-hmm. it's really important to have large blocks of time to do exactly what you're talking about, which is right. because you're trying to solve a problem and then, and then get it to code. And I think there are certain parts of sales that are, that probably are similar, except that problem is, is different. And, and so I think it's more, like you said, that, that the, the, the approach to it, the, the mental model around it for folks appreciating that and saying, yes, like part of the job of sales here at this company, if that's, if that's the right approach is, it's not just about the number of dials and emails and calls and, and touch points, but yeah, maybe taking time to think and blocking that off is valued and encouraged. Yeah, well, I think depending on the complexity of what you're selling, yeah. it doesn't, I think, require a great, <laughs> let's say, assume you're not transactional mm-hmm. in the product you're selling. You're going to assume some level of complexity, which means that I believe that part of the seller's role is to, solve a problem for the buyer, right? The buyer has a challenge. They want a solution to that challenge. You know, it can't always just be, hey, here's our product. This is what it does. You know, you have mm-hmm. to put it in the context. You have to create a vision around it, a story around it. You know, value proposition has to make sense. Requires thought. Yeah, salespeople, if they don't approach their job as inherently as problem solvers for their buyers, sure. Where's... We're just going to execute. We're going to make our calls. We're going to do our dials. You know, blah, 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 Yeah. And yeah, they never take time. And I think we see the outgrowth of that in terms of, yeah, code attainment and, and the like, all the data we see. Yeah. So 
white space in your people's calendars. White space, and I'm going to look that book up a minute to think. Thank you. For a minute to think. All right. All right, Puyan. Well, yep. thank you so much for joining me. As always, a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for having me. Always enjoy our conversations. Likewise. And if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Active there. Find me there. Puyan Salahi. Look up uh, Scratchpad. And if you want to email me, it's just my first name, dot last name at scratchpad.com. All right. Excellent. Okay. All right. Thanks so Thanks. much. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank our guest, Puyan Salehi, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.